0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Happy that you're with us. My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, like I said, I'm just uh, so excited that you're here to, to celebrate victory over death day. It's Easter, it's Resurrection Day, it's also Victory Over Death Day, and I'm just excited that you're here to, uh, to celebrate that with us. You know, I heard a story recently of a grandfather who wanted to see how much his four-year-old granddaughter knew about the Easter story. So he sat her down on his lap and he asked her, sweetheart, tell me what Easter was all about. And without hesitating, she said, well, Jesus was crucified and they put him into a tomb. And then they rolled a big stone In front of the tomb. And then they put a bunch of guards in front of the tomb as well to to guard it. And then on the third day, there was a big earthquake and the stone rolled away. Well, you can imagine how excited and happy Grandpa was that his granddaughter knew the story so well. But unfortunately, to his dismay, she continued. And, 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 And when the earthquake happened... The entire town came out by the grave, and if Jesus came out and saw his shadow, they knew there'd be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) There is a lot of confusion, I think, about what the resurrection means. It's easy to understand why that might be the case. So we're going to talk about what the meaning of the resurrection is this morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 20. We're going to look at the first eight verses of John chapter 20. This is John's account of the resurrection. Uh, We're also, after we look at that, hopefully that will maybe clear some confusion for us, but after that we're going to look at two other people that Jesus met and what the resurrection meant for their lives. We're going to look at Nicodemus very briefly, and then we're going to look at the woman at the well. So again, in John chapter 20, we'll refresh our memory of of Jesus on the resurrection. I'm just going to read from verse 1 now. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. By the way, that's how John always referred to himself in his gospel, the one whom Jesus loved. And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Now, have you ever been truly surprised? And not in a good way. I don't mean in the like the surprise, it's your birthday. You know, that kind of birthday. I mean like the the kind where you get a text from your girlfriend that says, it's not you, it's me. Or the time when your boss had called you into her office to say, I've got some bad news for you. You know, it's that kind of sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach kind of surprise well, well that's that's what mary felt on this morning you see jesus was her lord she loved jesus so much that she actually woke up before dawn to finish his burial preparation she had supported his ministry from the last three years from her own resources along with some other women and no doubt she was there at his tomb and in great grief as well Her Lord was dead, and now her grief was compounded by his missing body. So she runs and finds the other disciples. And continuing on then in verse 3, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, honestly, there's really nothing funny about this story. I mean, this whole scene is obviously incredibly... Important. It's meaningful on a, on a cosmic scale, but I can't help but imagine this scene here, where John is sort of striding effortlessly ahead. You know, he's he switched into Usain Bolt mode, and he's just sprinting ahead, no problem, with great poise. And here's poor Peter, who, if you weren't aware, he's usually leading from the front. He was kind of the leader amongst equals, amongst all of the disciples. And he's at this dire moment. He's dragging behind, hands on his knees, just, hold on, John, wait for me. I just can't get over that scene. It's interesting to me that John included that. So they arrive at the tomb, and stooping to look in here in verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had, on, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So John gets there first. He stoops to look into the tomb, but he doesn't enter. Peter went in, and what does he find? He finds, he finds an empty tomb, this thing that we've been singing about all morning. And then, interestingly enough, the face cloth folded up neatly by itself and separate. That's interesting as well, isn't it? This is not the work of a grave robber. And then the other, continuing in verse 8, then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. What happens when John enters that tomb and sees that it is empty? What happens? He sees and he believes. What exactly did he believe? Well, I think in that moment, it all clicked for John. He'd been with Jesus for the last three years, ministering with him. He was his disciple. John now understands and believes what Jesus had said about himself. And what are some of those things that he said? Well, I'll just rattle them off for you. And this is John at the end of his gospel there at the end of chapter 1 says, You could fill the whole world with books about the things that Jesus said and did. So I'm just going to give you a few of those. He said that he would die and rise from the grave on the third day. He said that he would give new life, meaningful life, to all who put their trust in him. He said that his disciples, this is interesting, he said that his disciples would be his friends. He said that whoever sacrificed in this life for him and for his kingdom would receive a hundred times as much in the next life. He said he was God and the Son of God. He said he was the Messiah and Christ, God's chosen and anointed one. He said that he would forgive all the sins of all who would ever believe in him. He said that all who believe would never die a permanent spiritual death, but would have everlasting life. But that's not all Jesus said about himself. Listen to what else he said. This is actually right after John 3.16, the verse that I know many of us know so well. This is from John 3.18. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Whoever believes in him, he's speaking of himself, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Most of, us, most of us here, I think, would say we believe in Jesus. We would say that we believe in the resurrection. Despite that, we tend to make Jesus into who we want him to be. But here's the problem with that. When we make Jesus into who we want him to be, we just get ourselves. We get a God that we want, a God of our own making, a God that fits our life, a God that affirms our choices. We get a God who is there when we want him and then goes away or just fades to the background until we need him again. He's a God that's all about helping us feel good. We get a God that is sadly no God at all. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal. It's a trumpet blast into our minds and our souls. Jesus is saying, I'm not who you think I am. I'm much more than that, and what I require of you might be much different than you think. Nicodemus was a man who had an idea of who Jesus might be and what Jesus might require. He knew things in this world were broken, and he was looking for God's kingdom to fix them. Nicodemus came to Jesus late one evening and said, Rabbi, we know That you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And then listen to what Jesus says to him. He doesn't even acknowledge (laughs) anything that Nicodemus says. He just gets right to the point. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused by this. You know, he was a smart man. If you weren't aware, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was kind of the, kind of the, the Jew's Jew. They observed all of the rules uh, of what it meant to be a true uh, Jewish person. Um, and not only that, was he a Pharisee? He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the ruling council, the, 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 the governing body that the Romans had appointed over the nation of Israel. So he was a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin, So he was a smart man. He knew Jesus didn't mean a physical rebirth. He knew that Jesus was using a metaphor, a birth as a metaphor, so he answered him back in the same kind of metaphor. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus doubles down on being born again. He says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus meant. He he thought to himself, isn't entrance into the kingdom based upon following tradition and God's rules? How could a rebirth... Something completely outside of his control. Be required for entrance into God's kingdom. Nicodemus was confused about what Jesus meant by being born again. But he was actually even confused at a deeper level than that. His identity, see, his identity was built upon the idea that by being a good person, God would accept him. But Jesus said, your religion you rule keeping, you're striving to be a good human, as we might say in our uh, modern parlance. Everything you are about, everything you are about isn't what God really wants. So, what's Jesus' point? It's this you can't be in God's kingdom, you can't be one of His people, you can't be right with Him unless you are born again of His Spirit. And you can't do that on your own. It's something that must happen to you, not something you do. You see, Nicodemus thought real life is found in being a good person, trying to do the things that please God. And Jesus told him, no, you must be born again. Well, not long after his meeting with Nicodemus, it's actually the very next chapter in John, Nicodemus is in chapter 3, our next story with the woman at the wells from chapter 4. And that she is really the polar opposite of Nicodemus in every possible way. Under the hot summer sun in Israel, Jesus stopped at a well and he asked her for a drink. And this was weird because she was a woman and Jesus was a man. And in those times, men didn't speak to women that they didn't know already. And she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. Even though they shared the same ancestors, the two people groups deeply, deeply mistrusted each other. So it makes sense when she says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I mean, it's basically like she's saying, hey, Jewish guy, you know who I am, right? Are you sure we should be talking to each other right now? But as he did with Nicodemus, he doesn't even acknowledge that. He doubles down. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still didn't quite get what he was talking about. Continuing in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She had had five husbands. In those days, this is an important part of the story. You might think, well, she just couldn't make her mind up. She just went from one man to the next. But that would be applying, sort of, the way we think about divorce in our context to the way things that worked. Back in those ancient times, in those days, only men could divorce their wives. So in essence, the way to think about this is that she had been tossed aside and rejected by five different men. And now in desperation, in hopes of surviving in a time when woman, women couldn't really work, they couldn't provide for themselves, in that context, she lived then with a man who was unwilling to, to marry her, She had no hope for real life. She was just trying to survive. This woman was a societal outcast. Normally women came to the well in the early morning or in the early evening, not in the heat of the day, right at noon. This woman came at noon in the hottest part of the day so that she would be guaranteed of being alone. She knew of the condemnation of the people around her, how they despised her, how they looked down upon her, how she was worthless in their eyes. And so she just avoided contact altogether. She had no social standing, no esteem. Nicodemus knew the world was broken and hoped that Jesus might come to fix it. She knew that she was broken and didn't believe there was any fix. So her dialogue with Jesus continues about the differences between Jewish and Samaritan beliefs and she concludes by saying I know that Messiah is coming when he comes he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he. He effectively says I am. I am the Messiah. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come see a man who told me all that I ever did can this be the Christ? Jesus spoke words to this woman that she thought were never possible. She had given up on the idea that she was worthy of real life. And Jesus came to her and said, I know you think you are irredeemable, but I have come to redeem you. I know you. I know your sins. And I still offer you living water that will spring up to eternal life. Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again, and to the woman that she needed the living water that only he could give. To both, he offered the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and entrance into God's kingdom. This is the most important offer ever made. Why is that? Well, it starts with God's holiness. God is holy which means that he's different from us. (laughs) He's not just different, he's other, he's separate, he's perfect in a way that we really frankly can't even imagine. And God's holiness requires payment for injustice. The truth is that God's holiness cannot stand or even wink at our sin. He can't just brush our foibles under the rug. Even the small stuff, his holiness requires an account. For all of it. It requires payment for all of it. And that leaves us in a difficult spot. We owe God, but we can't pay Him off. No amount of good stuff we do will make up the debt. No, even the good stuff we do is tinged with our imperfections. So some of us feel like if we work harder, right? What if I just go to church more if I, you know, kind of apply myself to things here? Lift myself up by the bootstraps, right? God helps them who help themselves. No? No. That's not how it works. That's what Nicodemus believed. But it's just a treadmill. You're running super hard but aren't getting anywhere. Instead of finding freedom, you find slavery. Instead of acceptance, performance. Some of us feel like, a little bit different than Nicodemus, some of us feel like we can't ever be good enough that will never be worthy of God's love and of His forgiveness. That it must be for somebody else who has their act together. That's what the woman at the well felt. In either case and in everything in between, maybe you don't fit into either of those categories perfectly, that's where the cross of Jesus comes in. On the cross, Jesus took on the punishment that we deserve. For our failures, our weaknesses, our proclivities, those things we do when no one is looking, And those things that bring us deep, deep shame. In short, Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our sins. God put his wrath against our sin on Jesus so that we could have real life. Jesus suffered the death we deserved and offers abundant life now and forever. Theologians call this the great exchange. But to receive this gift of life and partake in this great exchange, you must be born again. You must drink the living water what does that look like? Well, it starts with this. You confess your sins and turn away from them. Jesus calls that repentance. And that's not just owning your sin, but it actually involves turning from it as well. It's a change of mind. It's a change of mind. But what do you do? What do you turn to? Or rather, to whom do you turn? And of course, this is Jesus himself. You believe what he said, that you need a new birth and the living water that only He can give, so you place your trust in Him, that He can deliver you from your misplaced hopes and identity. And don't we have a lot of misplaced hopes and identities? But more importantly, He will give you the thing that you need most, and that is forgiveness of sins and restoration to relationship with God through Him. And here's how you can know. This is how this all ties back to the resurrection. Here's how you can know that you can have real life. The empty tomb. That's why we make such a big deal about Easter. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is is the seal. It's the proof that all he said about himself, that he is God and God's son, that he is the Messiah, and that he promises you forgiveness of sins, life now and forever, the way that life was really intended. Jesus has something to offer every person here. Nicodemus was one of the most accepted and revered people in his culture. He was looking for life in the kingdom. And Jesus said, you must be born again. The woman at the well was the most despised of her culture, a total failure and an outcast. She wasn't even looking for life. But Jesus found her and offered her the sure hope of life in him. All she had to do was drink the living water of Jesus. For those of us who are here, for those of us here who are good and moral, Jesus says it's not enough. You cannot enter God's eternal kingdom by being good enough. You must be born again of his spirit. For those of us here who are the failures, despised, and rejected, Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you the living water that springs up to eternal life. You know, in Jesus' day, pearls were considered the most valuable of all of the gems Back then, they hadn't figured out how to farm pearls, so pearl divers had to dive to great depths to search oyster beds to find these pearls. They would actually tie rocks to themselves that would plunge them deep into the waters, sometimes as deep as 100 feet into the, the ocean. And when you go down that deep, the light becomes faint, Right? Your ears pop, and the pressure helps you hold your breath longer, but coming back up is very dangerous. Many divers died from shallow water blackout as they came back up to the surface. It was a very dangerous occupation, but with great risk came great reward. And in a very similar way, Jesus is like one of those divers. He left the light of heaven, tied to himself the burdens of human flesh, we know what that's like, and plunged into the deep depths of this world to secure the pearl of salvation. And it came at great cost to him. His very life, it also came with a great reward because not only did he secure salvation and a kingdom for his people, he overcame death itself. So it's no surprise that he calls us to seek him and his kingdom like an invaluable treasure. He tells the story of two types of people who discover the value of his kingdom in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls who, on finding the one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Salvation is such a valuable and costly gift, and yet it is free for you to receive. All you must do is repent and believe in the name of Jesus. This is why the empty tune is such a big deal and why we say that Jesus is worthy. Please stand with me as we pray. O God, our Father, we come to you on this most joyous morning when we remember and celebrate Jesus' victory over death. O God, you have been so kind and gracious to us in many ways. We proclaim and give thanks that Jesus is our rescuer and redeemer, that he is the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, that he has died to ransom us out of slavery to sin. And because of this, we proclaim that he is worthy.